0: Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by our deputy editor, Nick Bostock, to talk about the latest news affecting general practice. Coming up, we're talking about GP pay and what's behind recent headlines in the national press about so called huge rises in GP income. We're looking at how the growing NHS waiting list and long waits for treatment are affecting patients and driving up workload in general practice. And we're discussing some results from our recent survey, which suggests that practices are becoming increasingly reliant on locum GPs. Our good news story this week is about a significant reduction in people prescribed potentially addictive medicines. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. First up, earlier this month, listeners would have seen headlines from national newspapers about average GP income rising over the past decade. We've spoken on the podcast many times about the increased financial pressure practices are facing because of rising inflation and the impact this is likely to be having on GP partner income. So what exactly is going on? Nick, you've been looking at the figures. Firstly, where are these from and what are they saying?
1: In terms of where the figures come from, the recent media coverage you mentioned has been driven by the latest statistics on GP earnings and expenses from NHS Digital, which publishes all sorts of information to do with the health service. As you said, these new figures show a rise in GP income, and GPs have come in for some significant criticism over that at a time when some newspapers are already routinely attacking the profession, particularly over access. And I'll come on to exactly what these latest figures show, but at first it's it's worth looking at what they cover and what some of their limitations are. The earnings and expenses figures are based on tax returns, so this data is always a slightly retrospective look at GP pay. Uh, And these latest figures are for 2021-22, so it's the last financial year but one. And the figures show earnings and expenses for salaried GPs and partners across GMS and PMS contracts in each of the four UK nations. And they show how earnings and expenses have changed over recent years, both for salaried and partner GPs and for both groups combined with some additional information about variation between different areas and, for example, between practices of different sizes. As I said, the figures are drawn from anonymised tax data from HMRC. And the significance of that is that they show not just NHS income earned by GPs, but also any private income they earn as well. So that's blended together. Another factor to bear in mind is that the figures do not show anything about the number of hours worked to earn this income. So doctors could be working part time, full time or well over full time, as we know many do. And they also don't make clear the revenue streams that the income comes from. So, for example, it's not clear where a GP has one single NHS role, or where they might have extra income from working as a PCM clinical director, for example, or as in a partnership role as well, or from a pharmacy or dispensing business that they run. The latest figures show that in England, average income before tax for partners and salary GPs combined rose to £118,100 in 2021-22. And for GP partners, average income before tax rose to £153,400, which was a really significant jump over the previous two years. Income rose for salary GPs two to £68,000 a year in 2021-22, which is a much smaller jump than for partners. And the rises in England are larger than elsewhere in the UK, and we'll come on to some of the specific reasons for that shortly.
0: So what's behind the rise? Why has it gone up? And is this sort of level of income likely to be sustained?
1: The biggest factor behind the rise in GP income is the rise in partners' income in England. And there are a couple of short term factors that have contributed to that rise, but far and away the main one is the COVID vaccination campaign. So during 2021-22, GP practices in England delivered hundreds of millions of COVID jabs as part of the response to the pandemic, with many of their patients receiving multiple jabs during that one financial year. So as we know, many GPs and practice staff worked long hours, sometimes seven days a week and at significant personal risk to deliver this absolutely crucial plank of the UK's response to, to covid Increased income reflects the fact that practices maintained routine services while delivering this unprecedented vaccination campaign on top, and it certainly shouldn't be seen as a pay rise because it's extra funding for a huge additional task they took on. Another factor that artificially inflated practice income in 2021-22, according to accountants, is the fact that during the pandemic, PCNs, the local networks practices work in, often struggled to spend their budgets in full. And this meant that many of them ended up with surpluses. And because of the way that these networks are funded through a sort of bolt-on part of the GP contract, those surpluses show up in individual practice accounts, even though the money is actually not technically part of practice income. Another factor worth bearing in mind is that GP partner numbers are continuing to decline rapidly. And that means, in many cases, individual partners' income can be inflated because they've been unable to recruit a partner to replace one who's recently quit. So their income appears larger than it would otherwise do if they'd been able to fill a post. So there are a range of short-term factors that have driven the spike in income in 21-22. And some of the experts say that in subsequent years, this is not likely to be maintained. So COVID income will drop because jabs are being delivered to fewer people less often. PCNs are now spending their budgets in full, so that won't show up in the practice accounts. And of course, in the years since then, we've seen energy costs and other costs, including staff costs because of cost of living pressures and the rise in the minimum wage going up far, far faster than GP funding as a whole.
0: Yeah, like you said, none of these stories and these figures reflect the current cost of living and inflation crisis. What have GP leaders had to say about all of this?
1: So the BMA said these figures don't accurately reflect the current reality for general practice. They pointed out that some of the issues that I've just mentioned around how this bump in income reflects effectively emergency funding during the pandemic for delivering a service at huge personal cost. And they pointed out that these figures simply don't give any indication of the huge cost pressures practices have been facing in the financial years since 2021-22.
0: One of the things you did on the website, and we'll put a link to this in the notes for this episode, you also looked at how GP pay over the past two decades has changed. What did you find out when you were looking at that?
1: Yeah, so I mentioned some of the news coverage around general practice pay. There were headlines along the lines of GP pay having gone up 25% in a decade, for example. And it's true that if you compare combined salaried and GP partner income before tax in 2021-22 with the situation a decade earlier in cash terms, and that's the crucial bit of this, there has been a 25% increase. But if you look at the real terms change in income over that period, so taking into account inflation, the picture is vastly different. On the measure of salary GP and partner income combined, Instead of being up 25%, pay is virtually unchanged in real terms over the decade to 21-22. And on top of that, if you look a little bit further back at the situation 15 years ago instead of 10, in real terms, income is actually significantly down compared with the level it was at then. So the headlines reported widely about GP pay are not quite what they seem. If you look at just partners, the real terms figures are possibly even more interesting in that They show that in real terms, GP partners earned more in any of the years from 2004 5 to 2009 10 than they do now. So, the real story here, perhaps, is that even with the big bump in COVID income that GP practices earned by working long hours, flat out, seven days a week, their income is still well below the level in real terms that it was at after they got a long overdue pay rise in 2004 when the so-called new GMS contract was introduced.
0: Next up, we're looking at the impact of the record NHS waiting list. The data we're going to be talking about here relates to England, but obviously exactly the same issues will apply in the other UK countries. So in England, the current NHS waiting list now stands at a record 7.6 million people, and there are all sorts of consequences from having this many people waiting for care. Nick, the CQC published results of its annual survey of hospital inpatients this week, and that had some really key findings about the impact of waiting for treatment. What did it have to say?
1: Yeah, so the CQC published its 2022 inpatient survey this week, and anyone aged over 16 who had an overnight stay in an NHS hospital during last November was eligible to take part. And the survey found that 41% of patients reported that their health had deteriorated while they were on the NHS waiting list and waiting to be called in for a hospital procedure. Clearly, not all patients on the waiting list will need an overnight stay in hospital, so it doesn't represent everybody on the waiting list necessarily. But the figure is a, a good indication of the way that delays for treatment are affecting patients And of course, while patients await hospital treatment, they're likely to need repeated appointments with their GP practice to manage their condition. This also comes after reports last month based on data from hospitals that as as many as 100,000 patients may have died last year while on the NHS waiting list. So far from being an inconvenience, in some cases the delays can have far more significant consequences.
0: Yeah, I mean, we've also had our own polling that shows the impact of the NHS waiting list on general practice, which you wrote about last month. What did our survey find?
1: What GPs told us is that around a third of their appointments on average are with people who are on the NHS waiting list. So people who've been referred by their GP because they need hospital treatment but are still waiting to have that treatment. And patients in that position are often coming back repeatedly to their GP practice to ask them to expedite their referral, to chase it up with the hospital. But also they need support with pain, for example, you know, so they want stronger medication. Or with mental health issues that are exacerbated by the long wait for treatment that they're facing. And I think another factor that's really significant that came up from the poll is that waits for hospital treatment, so something entirely outside GP practices control, are a massive driver of abuse of GPs and practice staff. Patients are often understandably furious about waiting many months or even years for treatment. And the place they vent their fury is in the GP practice reception, in another follow-up consultation, or on the phone to their practice. So we know general practice is delivering record numbers of consultations with a declining number of GPs. But it's only with bits of information such as our poll or the CQC survey results that that we get a sense of the huge scale on which this is, is happening and how the NHS waiting list is really a huge driver of the general practice workload crisis.
0: Yeah, I mean, the waiting list obviously has all sorts of consequences for for hospitals and staff in hospitals as well, as well as, you know, consequences for, for patients in terms of whether they're able to work, which has knock-on effects on the economy, which we're not necessarily going to get into now. But there's this quite wide-reaching range of problems caused by having so many people waiting for treatment. One thing that's probably is worth bringing in here is the strikes by junior doctors and consultants. Next week, we'll see the first time that both junior doctors and consultants will be on strike at the same time. So consultants are staging a two-day walkout when they will provide what's called Christmas Day levels of cover only on the 19th and 20th of September and junior doctors are staging a three-day strike from the 20th to the 22nd of September so they'll basically will cross over on Wednesday next week and on that day junior doctors will also only be providing Christmas Day level of cover and then the following two days the junior doctors will be having an all-out strike for everyone and then following that in October both junior doctors and consultants are staging a joint three-day strike when they will only be providing Christmas Day levels of cover again for the full three days so there are potentially two really big industrial action things coming up and the latest figures from NHS England show that the total number of rescheduled inpatient and outpatient appointments and procedures. As a result of industrial action, now stands at 885,154. It's probably also worth mentioning that the NHS Confederation said last month that those official figures are likely to only really be the tip of the iceberg because they don't take account of preemptive cancellations, which are when trusts don't book people in for procedures and appointments when they know there's going to be a strike day. So it's very, very hard, really, to see how the NHS is ever going to be able to reduce the waiting list if the government is not prepared to get round the table and talk seriously to the BMA about pay and other concerns and find a way to end these strikes. And we know they've said no more negotiations. I mean, we've talked about the reasons for the strikes on the podcast before, and clearly the BMA's main demands are around pay, but it is also about working conditions. Junior doctors and consultants and GPs are working in teams that are overstretched, you know, without resources they need to be able to do the job they were trained for in the way they want to be able to do it. They see their colleagues leaving the profession on a daily basis because of this and because they can earn more elsewhere, ultimately. And unfortunately... The problem is, is if waiting lists remain as high as they are or rise even further, which is obviously a very real possibility, as well as patients experiencing more problems, we're going to continue to see huge levels of pressure in primary care and the rest of the NHS. And we know that workload pressures are one of the key factors driving doctors and other staff out of the NHS. There was another story you wrote this week, Nick, about a poll of 10,000 UK medical students that people probably saw on our website or in the papers, and that found that more than one in three planned to quit the NHS within two years of graduating. The key factors behind their plans to quit or move abroad were pay, work-life balance and working conditions, with more than four in five of them dissatisfied on all three of those points. So there's a real lesson from this, really. If doctors are that unhappy with those issues at the start of their career, This is just more evidence of why the government needs to engage seriously in talks with the BMA. Otherwise, we're just going to remain in this vicious cycle where we see more and more doctors leaving, increasing numbers of patients waiting for treatment. And without more of a focus on issues relating to retention, that's never going to get solved. And the government's NHS workforce plan, which we've talked about before, is basically destined to fail. Next up, we know that the GP workforce is shrinking and we often talk on the podcast about the impact this is having on GPs and practices. Last week on GP Online, we reported on findings from our recent survey that found that one of the consequences of this fall in GP numbers is that practices are becoming increasingly reliant on locum GPs. Nick, what exactly did our survey find?
1: 44% of uh, GPs who responded to the survey said that practice or practices they work at had increased their use of locums over the past six months. And that was more than double the 19% who said their practice had reduced its use of locums. So it looks like practices are becoming more reliant on locum GPs, as you mentioned, but many also said that they'd found it really hard to recruit a locum the last time they needed one. So two thirds of GP partners who responded to the survey said they'd been unable to recruit a locum when they needed one at some point in the last six months. And less than a quarter of partners said it was generally easy to recruit locum GPs. So one thing that's interesting about this is that we know practices are also struggling financially at the moment. And in the past, when practices look to make savings in these sorts of surveys, we've found that one of the things they've tried to do is reduce their use of locum GPs. So as you mentioned, the GP workforce overall is shrinking. And maybe this does reflect just how much practices are struggling to recruit that even when times are tight financially, many are using locums more. And one factor that came out in the survey was the sense that more and more GPs are choosing to work as locums, some straight away after qualifying, but also later in their careers. And it's often because they feel it gives them a capacity to control their workload and working hours at a time when Workload is out of control for many partners and salary GPs. So, there are some GPs who are frustrated that many colleagues are choosing to work as locums, but others very much saying it's the only way they can see to avoid burnout. And, you know, interestingly, that's an issue I can remember coming up at LMC's conferences well before the pandemic. So, it's not a new phenomenon, but perhaps something that's intensifying as the GP crisis continues.
0: So, our survey tells us about how practices' reliance on locums is changing, but Do we know anything about the locum GP workforce itself? How good's the data around the number of locum GPs and and where they are, for example?
1: We often report on GP workforce figures and the main figures we use and the ones that the BMA, the government and so on generally comment on are the monthly figures published by NHS Digital. And those figures are a snapshot of the workforce in general practice based on data from GP practice IT systems on the last calendar day of each month. We often report on the number of full-time equivalent, fully qualified GPs as the so-called real measure of the workforce. So it's excluding trainees who the government likes to count to bump up the numbers. And locums make up only 2.3% of the full-time equivalent, fully qualified workforce in England. So it's just under 650 full-time equivalent GPs out of a total of just under 27,200, according to those NHS digital figures. And even with the headcount version of the figures, that suggests that there may be around 1500 locums in England. So locums are obviously not attached to practices in the way that permanent GPs are, so their total contribution may be more difficult to measure for that reason. Often locums are GPs who also work in permanent roles as well, so that's a further complication. So it's probably fair to say that these snapshot figures don't really give the full picture of how many locums there actually are working in general practice in England or of the true contribution that they make to the overall workforce. Some estimates based on looking at the GMC register and counting numbers of GPs who are revalidating and eligible to work and then sort of comparing those numbers to the NHS digital figures have suggested that there could be well over 10,000 locums who are active in England at the moment. You know, that's obviously an order of magnitude different from the NHS digital figures. And that really just makes the point that we can't be confident how many there actually are. And that's something that the NHS perhaps should get a better handle on, particularly at a time when more doctors look as if they may be choosing to work in locum roles.
0: That's a really good point, isn't it? It's something that GP locums have been pointing out for a really long time. The National Association of Sessional GPs, or the NASGP, has been saying for years that we don't have a proper handle on what the GP locum workforce is. And if we don't know that, how can we understand what sort of workforce plans we really need? And how can we understand how we can best make use of those GPs, who are obviously a really, really important part of the general practice workforce?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely a case that using some of the statistics you get from NHS Digital in combination with some of those other figures that are available, like the GMC register, is maybe a a thing that the NHS should look at to try and get a clearer picture of what the real situation is.
0: We just have time for our good news story before we go this week. And this week, it's about dependence forming medicines. Figures released last week by the NHS Business Services Authority have shown that 1 million fewer people in England were prescribed dependency-forming drugs in 2022-23 when compared with 2015-16, which is a 12% fall. These drugs include opioids, gabapentinoids, benzodiazepines and Z drugs. There are still some issues around this because the findings from the NHS BSA report show that prescribing of dependency forming drugs remains substantially skewed towards people in deprived areas, with 56% more patients receiving them in the most deprived areas of England compared with the least deprived. However, it's worth you having a look at the story we did on GP Online about these statistics because Nick also looked at regional variation, which showed that some ICB areas have achieved reductions of up to 17% in the numbers of people receiving these medicines over the past seven years and some of those areas have really high levels of deprivation there's also a really interesting look in that story at how the numbers of patients receiving each class of drug and the numbers of items prescribed in each class has changed over the past seven years but in general this is a really positive story that really does reflect the hard work of gps and practice teams in this area in recent years we'll put a link to that story about the data in the notes for this episode Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. I'm back next week for what should be a really fascinating conversation. I'll be speaking to Dr. Ben Allen, who's a GP partner in Sheffield, about how he developed a framework that has helped his practice buck national trends to deliver rising patient satisfaction, as well as improving continuity and access and boosting staff morale and retention. So please do join me then. In the meantime, you can keep up to date with all the latest news affecting general practice and access a wealth of other resources on our website at gponline.com.